Hello, everyone, and welcome to yet another episode of The Problem with Reading. I'm Brevin. I'm Steven. And I'm Sam. And this is a very special episode because this is not like our normal episode where we have, you know, a topic, maybe a couple articles. No, no, no. This is a buffet, a smorgasbord, uh, even a feast of articles, because we have asked many of our dear friends, friends of the pod, people who have been here before, people who know the lay of the land and, and what we like to hear, uh, and we have asked them a question. And, and what question was that, Stephen? Uh, the question was, what's the best article you've read this year? Indeed it was, and we got some fascinating uh, responses, kind of all over the map. Uh, Sam, do you want to just give like a little teaser? What are our just sort of a, a couple of the ideas or themes people might see in these articles. I mean, we had um, cybersecurity was a very prominent theme. So looking forward to that. We had Allison back with some bioethics and, and uh, its intersection with politics. Some good stuff overall. Give it a listen. Listen all the way to the end. Indeed, indeed. We have, like I said, a curated, uh, a special collection of the best articles from some of the best people we know. So like Sam said, have a listen. Hello, everyone, and welcome to yet another article from The Problem with Reading. I'm Brevin. I'm Steven. And I'm Zach. And that's right, we're here with Zach, alumnus, alumni. I don't know Latin, I'm Catholic, I'm ashamed of myself. But uh, Zach has been on the podcast before, also the sponsor of one of our best reading series, uh, The Master and His Emissary. Zach, how are you doing tonight? I'm doing all right. Uh, it's cold, snowy, uh, tough driving uh, back in my. Uh... My TL. Uh, wish I had my Subaru, but alas, it's in the body shop after an accident a couple weeks ago. Well, that's all fascinating. But to be honest, Zach, how you're doing matters a lot less than something else. And that is, what are you drinking right now? Um, I'm drinking orange juice because my fiance left a bunch of it behind because she loves orange juice. And I just usually drink water. But yes, uh, I'm having some of the orange juice that my fiance filled my fridge with that I don't know what to do with other than drink. That is as good a reason as any but you know throughout the year metaphorically our, our fridges get full of a lot of things but you know the fridge of our mind gets full with a lot of articles some of those articles are bad but some of the, but some of those articles are really really good and zach you have one article that was really really good like really good orange juice this year uh what was the title and author of that article yes uh it was uh, appeared in i believe the november issue of first things so very recently uh, it's critical grace theory by carl r truman who happens to be the professor in a class that uh, my little brother is in right now at Grove City College. Oh, he's at Grove City? I didn't know that. That's so awesome. Oh, I'm our, so jealous. One of our uh, friends, Jeff Bilbro, uh, is 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 at Grove City um, from, from SAU, right? Wait, doc, Dr. Bilbro ended up there? Yeah. I didn't know that, actually. Oh, yeah. that's awesome. Good for him. Yeah. yeah. Wow. Anyway, uh, that's yeah. all appropriate of nothing. Uh, but, Stephen, do you mind uh, giving us a quick rundown of this critical grace theory? Yeah, I'll, uh, I'll give it a quick breakdown, as it were. So Truman, our boy Truman from uh, The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self, he does love doing his little uh, kind of shorter vignettes, a little bit more uh, kind of bite-sized. And this is no exception. He gives a, a brief little article on uh, kind of critical theory and actually kind of what the what Christian what Christianity and critical theory have in common and then where they diverge. And he brings up the fact that the biblical authors were actually quite adept at what we would call critical theory. 
they challenged the created gods, or dare we say the socially constructed gods, that had supplanted the god who creates rather than is created. Uh, quote, these social constructions were given material forms as idols, and Israelite society, history, and cultic light were re reconfigured around their purported power, end quote. And he cites Isaiah and Paul as two prime examples of this particular phenomenon, um, and he argues very compellingly for this, but Brevin has told me that I have to keep this snappy, and therefore I will do what I can. Uh, both Isaiah and Paul are criticizing social phenomenon. Um, that is, they are criticizing society writ large. But Truman, though he describes this as social phenomenon, he does not. He does not imply that the individuals are not culpable. Neither do Paul and Isaiah. Uh, quote: Yes, the Israelites of Isaiah's day were embedded in systemic idolatry, as were the people of Paul's day and our de own day as well. But this social conditioning does not exculpate. End quote. Um, both also call to repentance, uh, both personal and societal. So all that to say, there's a decent amount in common that critical theorists have with biblical authors. However, and here he cites uh, John Henry Newman, or as we like to call him, Kuhlman, uh, heresy is emphasizing one aspect of the truth over against other aspects. And Truman emphasizes this um, quite, quite pointedly in saying that Christianity is a religion of hope, whereas critical theory is fundamentally hopeless. It's unable to articulate any positive social vision. Uh, quote, the lack of a positive vision occurs because, unlike Christianity, critical theory denies that the world has an intrinsic moral shape. End quote. Um, even the more optimistic critical theorists, um, like Marcuse, though convinced that utopia could actually be achieved, really struggled in articulating any sort of positive social vision. Um, and for the, for the critical theorist, all that exists is infected by injustice. You can't escape it. If you can't escape it, you can't envision anything outside of that. You're, you're locked into this sort of unjust frame. Um, but for the Christian or the Jew, there there is an articulated positive account of society. For example, the book of Proverbs, Sinai, the life, death, and resurrection of Christ. Um, and for the Christian in particular, what would Jesus do? It may be simplistic. It may be, even for us millennials, a little cringy. But it's not purely negative, And it has absolute, actual substance, unlike the critical theorist. Um, Truman, I'll, I'll wrap up with saying that Truman takes pains to emphasize that this is not a cult passivity. He's aware that... Oftentimes, this can be interpreted as such, and he actually cites Augustine as another critical theorist who did a very good job at calling out the ills that came with Rome, at deconstructing a lot of the stories it would tell itself to, em to emphasize the myth of its own greatness, but that Augustine would not, he would both not call for the absolute destruction of society, and he would also not call for us to be passive about it. He would instead say that we should emphasize the, uh, the virtues. Augustine instead offers uh, what Truman terms love as a critical concept for society. It is his alternative to justice, which cannot be achieved perfectly in this world. He doesn't offer passivity. He doesn't offer complacency. He doesn't offer kind of the complete destruction of all society. He instead says we must conduct ourselves perhaps loving the society, perhaps being critical of the society, but ultimately realizing that this is not our uh, our home, as it were. Well, thank you for that, Stephen. Um, so, Zach, why was this your best article that you read this year? I like it because uh, I think it uh, puts things in pretty simple terms. I think there's a lot of jargon in critical theory, um, and there's a lot of stuff to be taken seriously. And I think uh, this uh, work or this article by Truman uh, is an attempt to take it seriously by looking for the best of it and then finding it in our biblical authors, Paul and Isaiah, and sort of magnifying it there. You know, critical theorists are very interested in 
systems, uh, systems of oppression, uh, systems of falsehood of knowledge that masks, you know, power mechanisms. And I like how uh, what Truman does is he turns to scriptures and says, uh, hey, there's actually a better model for this. The ultimate system that we're all in is sin. Uh, and in fact, uh, this is really the world that that we're trapped in, immersed in. And then uh, as Christians, we have our eye towards uh, a hope in something greater towards an escape out of the system through an actual model, through Christ, through the church. And I really like how he boils it down so simply. And I think he also does it in a way where you don't have to be familiar with uh, uh, Herbert Marcuse or, or Horkheimer or Theodore Adorno or any of these other uh, critical theorists um, or or the critical race theorists, right? Kim, uh, Crenshaw um, and others that he mentions in the article. Uh, so it's a great, easy to understand, I think, introduction to critical theory while immediately kind of turning it towards the Christian model of it. Uh, and and very simply put, the critical theory basically leads to the politics of resentment and revolution and the politics of Christianity uh, lend itself towards uh, love, personal responsibility, and prudential engagement with government that seeks to, uh, little by little, step by step, try and encourage better loves than than what's being encouraged uh, by the government right now, and holds in mind the tension between justice and injustice, and basically that any attempt to establish justice on earth inevitably leads to some sort of injustice. And that complicated relationship between justice and injustice is built into the system of sin that's here on this earth. There's no establishing, you know, our perfect city. The uh, the perfect just city can only be established in speech. Uh, so this uh, comparison of sort of the critical tradition of Christianity and the critical secular tradition, um, I think, uh, is really well done in, in that it's it's simple and uh, it's biblical and. I think easy to understand for many Christians. Yeah, I think one thing that struck me is it Truman does come at this at like a very sort of basic level. Like he's he's trying to see how far does sort of the critical theory tradition and then the Christian tradition walk the same path. And his conclusion is is that they start in pretty similar places with their, you know, basically saying that the world and what it says is good and what it sort of takes as given does and should be questioned. And then the from from the critical theory perspective, it becomes depending on your tradition, class, race, sex, uh, power relationships. Whereas the biblical or the Christian questioning of those is saying is looking towards God's truth as illuminating the falsehoods in in society and seeking to reform them. Um, one thing that this brought to mind for me was I forget which of the popes it was. It was one of the more recent ones, um, maybe JP two. I'll bet it was JP too. He said a lot of good things, but something along the lines of, you know, society can generate, accumulate and pass on wealth. That's something that can be passed in between generations of, of a society, but there's no bank of morality for a, a society. It has to be constantly upkepted. You, the system can't be fixed and just run on steam. Essentially, there has to be a constant actual transformation of society, of its people. Um, that is, you know, the what Christians believe is you 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 never can do away with that inherent original sin is is always going to be something that you have to be to be wary of. Yeah, it's like the Christian approach of um, you know as a Lutheran, right, being baptized every day. Uh, the idea that uh, you know each day 
uh, you are renewed in Christ and you have that opportunity to sort of transform the world through your life and, and through your church and through the church. Yeah, I, I myself very much appreciate this article in that there's a lot of kind of eye rolling that a lot of Christians, um, I think understandably so, give to critical theory to a lot of this kind of news zeitgeist that we're really starting to encounter. And I think perhaps there is some justification, but at its core, I think there is something that Truman is very much on, um, kind of on the scent. Um, he, he, he very much identifies this idea that yes, we as Christians should be repulsed by the sort of complacent stories that the powerful give themselves to make themselves feel justified by having said power or what have you. And Christians, I, I think have every right to say, no, that's not, that's not how the heavenly city works. That's not what God's kingdom is all about. Blessed are the poor, um, et, et cetera, et cetera. So I, I, I very much appreciated Truman's, especially because Truman is typically very critical of critical theory. I mean, Rise and Triumph was all, I mean, it was him taking a lot of these critical theory uh, theorists to task. Made so it I his really, personal project, and this is sort of like very generous in a way. Yeah, yeah. So I very much appreciated this sort of attitude that he had in this article. Yeah, I agree. I, I think it's, I, I, I saw that as well, and I, I feel like it treats critical theory more fairly than perhaps it even deserves um, by you know, again, trying to take maybe the Christian interest in those different nuances of critical theory and and turning it towards the Bible, turning it towards, hey, you know, you've heard it uh, from you know, sort of contemporary critical theory, but go back and look at really what's what is this what is this societal critique really? And then let's look at Paul. Let's look at Isaiah. Let's look at the system of sin, idolatry, and falsehood. How that's related. And then I really think this article excels when he gets to Augustine and talks about sort of Augustine's treatment of mature Christian political engagement, uh, particularly in the face of the fall of Rome and how uh, City of God as a work is really all about uh, what do we do now as Christians uh, in this empire in which our religion was birthed uh, and it's now you know crumbling and uh, decaying and uh, you know what what does that look like? What is political engagement? Uh, what that situation look like, and uh, what is justice really? Uh, what what is what does our engagement look like with that? And I think, although Truman never says it in the article, uh, prudence is the answer. I mean that that is the word that keeps coming to my mind when we talk about uh, political engagement. It's uh, sort of a a cautious hopefulness uh, because we are inspired by our church by Christ. Uh, and and this cautious hopefulness that we can encourage the love of society in a you know better way that that we can call people to transcendent truths that are bigger than their current political circumstances um, and I, I really love uh, that aspect of it because that really gives people the sort of hope that allows them to resist terrible injustices uh, you know that that makes that makes the sort of unkillable revolution without trying to, um, but you know, a revolution of the human heart. I I have to wonder. Truman has kind of proven himself to be prophetic in a way. Um, kind of at the end of his book, he has his few predictions, and so far they seem to be fairly on. I actually wonder if he's starting to sniff in the wind that there is a bit of change in the air, and he his. I wonder if his concern is that Christians are going to overcorrect. And so when a society is kind of embracing the more critical theory aspects, the overcorrection would be to completely reject, overcompensate, and therefore the the poor among us, the uh, the disenfranchised, the lowly, they'll be the ones to take it on the chin, frankly, as they are, are normally. And so 
I, I guess I very much appreciate him saying, hey, let's not overcorrect. Let's not let's not forget what these like the, the, the source of these these kind of schools of thoughts there. It's an understandable outrage at injustice as we should be outraged. It is an interesting thought that you just brought up. Um, and it reminds me of just I mean, he's he's trying to walk a very delicate line that the church has to walk where. I think, Zach, we can both speak from our undergrads seeing people who sort of confronted with critical theory. You you can either basically embrace, like, the, the way that it starts is you embrace your Christian tradition as it aligns with the critical theory side of things. And then, but you just end up where you, where the religion, Christianity adds nothing to it for you. It just becomes politics and then politics is your religion. And that happened with many of our acquaintances and friends, I, I think I would say. And then on the other hand, you could completely reject it and like you were saying Stephen, become callous and saying you know because of the uh you know going too far down into saying that whoever happens to be you know perceived to be the victim in this situation it must be because of injustice it must be you know there must be a violent return of force and that's always justified people get turned off from that so yeah that's an interesting thought Stephen. that that Truman could be sort of trying to prevent the the correction to the overcorrection, something like that. Uh, but Zach, any final thoughts? Any other moments from this article that really stood out that made this the best of the year? Um, no, I I agree absolutely with what you said, especially with our shared experience in undergrad, um, and and really having that sort of political choice about being confronted with uh, critical theory, with systems of power and and struggles in politics. And the temptation it brings to uh, to treat it as idolatry, to treat politics as the end-all, be-all. I think what we really need is a restoration of uh, that sense of transcendence, of beautiful things, things that are beyond mere you know, describing, that are beyond uh, sort of being able to be quantified. Um, you know, that's the sort of call that that we should have in our lives that inspires us to look beyond uh, this. Um, I, I think my highlights of this article for sure are the way that uh, Truman closes with Augustine um, and uh, talks about uh, love. I know it's a cliche, but love as the organizing principle of Christian political engagement, uh, you know, allowing societal critique and improvement while avoiding the extreme condemnation that comes with political revolution. Um, I mean, it I love the idea of, of shared loves shaping society and encouraging the right loves improve society. That's my hope for politics, and that's my personal hope for political engagement and, and for my vote and what I do in my town and my city and my church. Very good. Um, honestly, pretty beautiful, and someone should write that down. But speaking of reading, Zach, we have one question for you, a very important question. Hopefully you have a ready and pithy answer for this. And that, Zach, is... What is the problem with reading? Well, the problem with reading is that fundamentally it's a left brain activity. That's that's really what uh, what gets us. You know, it's it's the hall of mirrors. It, you know, you're reading one day, the next day you're watching TV, the next day you're playing video games, the next day you're living in the matrix and you can't escape. It's so true. We should have never let the peasants learn how to read. Glad you're on board, Zach. Thank you so much for coming on and sharing your top article of the year. Uh, so for everyone on this very short article for the problem with reading, I'm Brevin. I'm Steven. And I'm Zach.
Hello, everyone, and welcome to yet another article with The Problem With Reading. I'm Steven. I'm Brevin. I'm Kellen. Yes, indeed. Yet another nice, short, and snappy article with a repeated guest, uh, Mr. Kellen. We don't do last names here. Um, nearly messed that one up. Before we dive into the nitty-gritty details of, uh, of your essay or your article, uh, Kellen, what are you drinking? Well, uh, currently I'm drinking a shot of Evan Williams bourbon in a uh, mixed with a can of Diet Dr. Pepper. Ooh, that, so pretty much uh, a Jack and Coke except a Jack and Pepper? Pretty much, yeah. Um, and yeah, it's, it's my, my, my standard go-to drink most days. Kellen, do you have a good name for this cocktail, quote-unquote? Whiskey and Coke, I'd probably call it, even though it's Dr. Pepper. But we don't do brands here. There are it's other all... uh, there are other soft drinks available. Uh, this that we don't we don't we don't give preferential treatment to any soft drinks. We don't give preferential treatment until they pay us to do that. In which case, we will give complete preferential treatment. <laughs> we will sell out in a heartbeat. I'm just saying, like you're missing like a golden opportunity for some great, like very unique names that people will have to ask you. Like you say, oh yeah, you know, I, I had this such and such cocktail, and they'll be like, what's that? And then you have to explain it. Like for example, the one that comes to mind is a Doctor Willie. That's pretty good. Yeah, I mean, I feel like it's one I'd have to explain, but yeah, I feel like I, I mean, is that intentional? Is that, yeah. is that a feature, not a bug? Okay, yeah, fair enough. Yeah, fair but enough. speaking of explaining, Jeez. um, but speaking of bad transitions. <laughs> right. So the uh, the essay that or the article that Kellen has brought us is is neither an essay or an article. <laughs> it is a video essay. Thank you, Brevin. Um, it is a video essay. Uh, How Dear Sister Changed Comedy by Karsten Runquest. Um, and basically, the long and short of this is that uh, Dear Sister, which was a, uh, a comedic sketch done by SNL, um, it, it really did kind of change the fundamental nature of how a lot of online humor works, or just how a lot of comedy in general works. The essayist notes that uh, this was SNL's earliest foray into the internet, or at the very least, at its very earliest stages. Um, and this was also kind of when the idea of digital shorts, of kind of quick consumable um, short bits were still kind of very much a new thing. People were experimenting with a lot of different forms of uh, of this sort of um, an entertainment medium. Um, he notes that there were a few factors that really made this uh, so popular. Um, some just kind of pertain to the form, uh, such as it was a very easily shareable phenomenon. This is when YouTube was first starting to become rather large, or rather popular, that is. Um, it was also easily repeatable, or what we might call memeable. Um, lots of people were riffing on this. I mean, this was this was before kind of memes were really a thing. They were starting to kind of come onto the scenes, but very like I don't think the term meme was even around when Dear Sister came out. Um, but the idea of people going and doing different riffs on this that that kind of boosted its popularity. There was a bit of controversy that came with it, though. Um, for those of you that don't know Dear Sister, it pretty much is an absurdist piece of humor in which case, basically, murder after murder is played by played for laughs um, and in kind of a highly dramatized, over-the-top sort of way that just gets more and more absurd. Um, but it also coincided with, I believe, a shooting in Virginia Tech. Um, and so there was a lot of controversy around kind of a very prominent studio um, ostensibly making light of a very tragic situation, although it should be noted that they they came out with this before the tragedy. So, um, you know, how much 
good faith criticism that is up for grabs. Um, but one of the things that really caught my eye is that this was cited by the essayist as arguably the first example of really millennial humor, um, which he uh, categorized as um, particular absurdist or surrealist humor that mostly um, is poking fun at excess, especially inter millennial internet humor is poking fun at excess. The idea that internet gives us pretty much access to excessive everything and dear sister giving an excess of um in this case murder just kind of played for laughs this overly dramatized overly um hyped up getting more and more absurd get kind of uh ramping up to well absurdity it's absurdist humor um or surrealist humor um and he, the 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 phrase he kind of kept falling back to was it's funny just because it's funny. Yes, Brevin, I know, I know. And it, it, it basically, if you look at a lot of early of early internet humor, you see this sort of idea that repeatability excess is considered funny. It's funny just because it's funny. Okay, that's my summation. In my defense, that was like a five minute at most. I, that was brief. That was pithy. Your video essay is only 70 minutes. Well, what can you do? Go listen to the video essay in that case. So, Kellen, what made this your top video or thing that you wanted to share with us for this podcast? Well, when you reached out and um, and asked for what you know had stuck with me this year, uh, that was one of the ones that, that kind of immediately came to mind when I started thinking of back on my year of of content consumerism. Because it really it it, it, it was I mean, in itself was a pretty short summation. It wasn't something you have to spend. 40 hours on to get the point like you have uh it, it's not a, it's not a long video essay like some of the ones that exist on youtube it's not three or four hours long uh it itself is a seven minute video and that it gets its point across snappily and doesn't really repeat it and then it's over and that made it something that i was i was happy to share in various group chats and friend groups i'm in as something that had stuck out to me um so when you when you asked it it, it was one of the top things that came to mind so that's why i wanted to share it it doesn't repeat itself, ironically enough, unlike Dear Sister. <laughs> True. What would you say is like, aside from, uh, well, assuming that Steven didn't didn't take your point, <laughs> but what were the the key things that, that you pulled out of this that made yeah. it keep your um, attention? Well, a couple of the key ones. Uh, I'll, I'll say I think Steven hit on one of my main two arguments I wanted to bring up, but uh, not the other one. So the first one being... Yes, it's it's absurdist humor. I don't I, I don't super agree with the author that it's the first example of millennial humor. I think millennials are kind of overemphasized. Millennials are older than you think. Like they, I, I think one example I've heard was Chris Evans to Tom Holland. So Chris Evans is like in his forties now. I mean, he's he's and he's still technically a millennial. So I don't know if I agree with the author in that sense. But it, the point of it being an absurdist sense of humor that is become our modern sense of humor. Um, whether it be millennials, whether it be Gen Z, whoever, whatever generation you want to you want to define it as, the absurdist point of it, it 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 exists and it's funny because it exists. It doesn't have a structure. It doesn't have a punchline. It's uh, it's it's funny because I don't know. It subverts expectations in a way. It it it's a, it's an absurd over overplay of a scene that happened in a TV show that they're just kind of memeing on it and making fun of it and and taking it to an absurd level. So that was one of the main points. But I think the second main point I wanted to bring up that really made it stick out to that really made this uh, video essay stick out to me is the author brought up access, 
not necessarily excess, but access. So this style of humor, this style of digital short or quick consumable YouTube content, kind of growing out of the original YouTube, we look at like Good Mythical Morning or people who have the kind of more long form content, short, shortening it up to, to a digital short content. That's something that anyone can make and share. You don't have to have SNL's budget. I mean, this in this particular instance, they did, but as the author of the video essay brought up for Dear Sister, they didn't actually use a budget. They had a motel room, a couple cameras, and a couple lights. And that was what made it so, so memeable, so accessible to anyone, because anyone could come and film their own take of that style of, of comedy with just a camera. Honestly, at, 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 at this stage, you know, nine, 10 years ago, phones were cameras. You had it in your pocket at all times. You could film your own comedy sketch, comedy short with no setup, no, no overhead, nothing like that. You could create content and share it and get it, uh, and get it out there to the world with no, with, with, with nothing but what you have on you at all times. So that, that, I think that was a really, really interesting point of what the author is coming at in this video essay talking about a shift towards comedy being more accessible to anyone. Yeah. So I, great points on that. So I, I, your talk about accessibility made me wonder when Vine, uh, first started. Because this is sort of what I think of is that this is almost I mean, Vine is, is further downstream of this. It's even shorter. It's even uh, snippier. And then uh, but that has had such a huge in like just continued rolling influence on everything downstream. Vine didn't come out till 2013. So this is like very, very early stage of what I think we can see is just this continuing roll towards absurdism, towards uh, speed in comedy. The thing that shocked me watching the original Dear Sister video about myself, I forgot completely and was surprised by like the fact that there was any setup at all. That they like had this whole thing. Oh, I'm writing a letter to my sister, and 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 there was voiceover, and I was like, man, this is like longer than I thought it was. I, I thought they, they they just got right into the shooting right away, and like that you know when the cops come in and then they talk about it for like two seconds. I'm like, oh, I'm getting bored. No, I didn't. But the <laughs> the 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 point is in in my mind, it has been subsumed into our current setup of humor which is even faster even uh more more truncated uh maybe a bit of a mimetic bottleneck phenomenon going on there but yeah no i i think this was a great uh video to bring up just because our memory is so short yeah i mean it, it's 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 a struggle to separate the two in our mind just because like the author of the video essay talking about it and the video itself are kind of he's all he's really doing is kind of describing why dear sister the snl sketch works so i mean the video I, I i bring today is a video essay on a short form comedy video it's not the comedy short form video but all it's really doing is kind of explaining why it why it works why it's shareable why lot people laugh at it so i i guess the the question i'm left with was kind of having heard this conversation um between you two i guess i wonder was it a harbinger or was it a catalyst um, that, that is to ask, would the comedic landscape look as it does today if it weren't for Dear Sister, as the, the essayist suggests? Or was this just rather they were there first, but the change was inevitable with the medium of the internet, of YouTube, Vine, and eventually TikTok? So, Kellen, I, I'll let you answer first, uh, but it was a harbinger. <laughs> All right, fair enough. I mean, yeah, I, I, I don't think that Andy Samberg and the Lonely Island guys are like the fathers of modern comedy. I think they were opportunistic. They saw a trend coming. They saw the growth of YouTube, the growth of the internet, 
as a place that SNL needed to to be, uh, you know, a market that SNL needed to break into. So when Andy Zamberg, who was just like an SNL cast member, pushed, I guess, Lauren Michaels and the whoever's in charge there to have these digital shorts be part of the 40-year established structure of Saturday Night Live, um, it was really more of, I, I think it was more opportunistic than it was a, a catalyst of a, of a, you know, a, a structural change in how we view comedy. I think it was more comedy was going to change this way with our with the rise of accessibility and excess both uh mentioned before and this was just you know taking advantage of of a trend early on Brevin, did you have anything to add to that or did My you only... give your answer and then let kellen give his answer first uh the latter um but i do just want to note to like help date this so this this sketch came out sometime in 2007 i don't remember what date but Ryan Higa's How to Be Ninja, if you remember that as like at the absolute most ancient YouTube like video set almost, also came out in, in 2007. So this is very much the, like the birthing pains of the entire modern uh, internet. And this humor. was Charlie the Unicorn, Salad Fingers, a lot of just really weird times in the internet. A lot of people experimenting with this new medium in very bizarre ways homestartrunner.com is the only thing i can think of that's older um which is i will still say peak internet but that's perhaps a story yeah, for another time i don't know when like good mythical morning or smosh started up but they all probably were also birthing themselves around I, then i thought yeah. good mythical morning was early 2010s i'm pretty sure they're after snl or sorry not after snl but after like uh dear, dear sister that is i'm fairly certain i could be wrong on that though yeah but speaking of mediums and ways of communing, communicating information and knowledge. Kellen, we do have a very important question for you. Okay. And that is, what is the problem with reading? Well, the problem with reading, um, I don't know, that's a, it, 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 it's a tough structure question. So I want to break it down to something that is, is more easily digestible in, in the tone of what we're talking about here. The problem I have with reading is that I can't do anything else while I'm doing it. Um, I mean, it's it's going back to the problem of uh, I don't know if it's a problem going back to the existence of excess. When I sit down at my computer and I want to play a video game or something, you know, I have a second monitor. Why wouldn't I have YouTube going on that to have something going on in the downtime? And it's just so much consumer like consummate your consumerism consuming coming at me. And then I think about like you know today uh, I don't know if we're dating this. I'm filming, we're filming on a Saturday. I. Could have spent today reading. Instead, I spent it doing multiple other things at the same time. And I don't know if that's a, a problem of wanting to to uh, have more like efficiency in your free time, do multiple you know free time activities at the same time, or what it, what what the problem is there. But um, one of, one of the problems I have with with not doing enough reading in my mind is that when I dedicate myself to reading, I know that that's my whole day. Straight out of Postman. I love it. I'm not sure if it's actually straight out of Postman, but I think we could do some riffing on that if we had more time. But alas, I don't think we have enough time. So for everyone here at the Problem with Reading podcast, I'm Steven. I'm Brevin. I'm Kellen. And we will see you in the next essay or video essay or whatever it may be. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another article with The Problem with Reading. I'm Sam. I'm Steven. I'm Brevin. I'm Allison. And our friend Allison, our resident bioethicist, um, who we bring in for any kind of medical um, or 
political questions, and primarily we discuss when those intersect. Um, Allison, what are you drinking right now? Oh, just water. Very boring. I'm, I'm waiting for these two to give our guests as hard a time as uh, they do me whenever I bring water. Guys, you know, you Allison, wanna... I, I actually really respect that decision on, on like a deep level. Because water, when you think about it, is really the most it's, bioethically it's, uncontroversial and safe liquid that, that one can drink. Um, so I just got to say, I think you might be the first person to do it on this podcast, honestly. Um, and it's just, it, it's really great to see you drinking water. Screw you. <laughs> David Foster Wallace would be proud, though. Yes. It's just also, I think it's a nursing thing. You just, uh, you're always drinking water. Uh, speaking of transitions, speaking of, well, actually, ooh, that's a good one. That's actually, oh. <laughs> speaking of weird transitions, oh. the article. <laughs> so the article that Allison shared is um, by Jamie Reed. I thought I was saving trans kids. Now I'm blowing the whistle. And this article is by... Um, a former employee of a pediatric gender clinic. Uh, I remember reading this article when it came out earlier this year. It's a fascinating piece, um, very troubling to read. But Jamie Reed is not a friend of conservatives at all. She's um, self-identified as queer, married to a trans man, very left-wing in all um, of her political and social stances. Um, Yet she is uh, blowing the whistle on this clinic that she used to work at noting that all of the survey phenomenon that she noticed while she was there. Um, over the last five years, she had seen a massive influx of patients, uh, primarily girls uh, in high school coming to transition to be men. This is, she's noting how this is a, a recent phenomenon, how it seems to be more socially motivated than anything else. And yet, uh, when she brought these concerns to leadership, there was real, they were completely dismissed or even silenced. Uh, so it's a fascinating article. It's really, I don't know, I think a great exploration of what's going on in this world. And Allison, I'm curious what uh, what you got out of it. Um, I guess it was it was validating to read because I've never worked in gender medicine, which I'm using air quotes um, because it didn't really used to be a field. I think even when I was initially like looking into being a nurse as a high schooler that would have never really been something that you thought of as like a specialty. It really has, even in just the time that I have had my like professional interest in going to school and then becoming a nurse, it's kind of evolved since then. And so I I thought, I I just, it kind of confirmed a lot of things that I have suspected about that field, which is mostly just based on the fact that it is so new and it didn't, this phenomenon didn't really exist prior to about the mid 2010s of lots of teenage girls coming in and saying that they want to transition and be men. And so I knew, just logically speaking, that this couldn't, you couldn't have a lot of long-term follow-up with these girls because because it just hasn't been happening that long. It's only been happening less than 10 years. So how do you know what the impacts are going to be on them five years from now, 10 years from now, into their adult lifetimes? I mean, you can't because this isn't something that used to occur. And so, so the 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 question mark i've always had in my head again not having worked in this specialty but i've i've always had this question mark of we know that there's a lot of comorbidities in terms of mental health stuff with these young people that are coming in we know that we didn't used to provide this type of treatment until very recently and so how can you say how can you use the word safe 
when describing this treatment because that that's that's kind of the it almost becomes more of a political word I think than a than a descriptive factual word in terms of a treatment being very safe. Um, and you, I mean, sure, you can call it effective for its for its small purposes, but in the kind of global picture of the young patient, I've just always had this hesitation to call that safe. And this this article was it, I just felt like that was backed up. It was quite the fascinating read, to be honest. Um, I, I think quite pithily summed up with the last couple of lines, um, quote, some critics describe the kind of treatment offered at places like the Transgender Center, that being the Transgender cent Center at Washington University, um, where I worked as a kind of national experiment, but that's wrong. Experiments are supposed to be carefully designed. Hypotheses are supposed to be tested ethically. The doctors I worked alongside at the Transgender Center said frequently about the treatment of our patients, quote, we are building the plane while we are flying it, end quote. No one should be a passenger on that kind of aircraft. And I, I, I think that really captures quite pithily what you were kind of poking at that. How how can this be safe? How we're, we're flying by the seat of our pants. And I, it is actually kind of an interesting question. Well, new treatments need to be developed and that will be therefore experimental and it will be some amount of risk. There will be risk inherent in this, but this seems something else. This doesn't just seem to be a new cutting edge treatment that we're we're really excited about. This seems to be something kind of a different nature. Yeah, especially because it's socially motivated, like Sam was saying. Um, it's not something that came about because of some great development in like pharmaceutical research or something like that. You know what we usually think of when we think of cutting edge treatment. It was it was motivated by some kind of online social phenomenon that like really happened pretty fast because I don't Remember, I'm seven years older than my youngest sister, and this was not a thing when I was in high school, and it was a thing by the time she was in high school, in terms of having people that were friends that identified as trans, that type of thing. Yeah, I, I anyway, that's my way of agreeing with you, basically, just to say this, this is not something that should have been embraced so readily, which, which is where it gets so tricky, because the author of this piece talks about how she didn't feel like she could question things without being told, like, well, you're just being transphobic. And that's an attitude that my my younger sister has, too. That she, if, if you have any kind of differing opinion, then all of a sudden you're like, I don't know, it's like some kind of mortal attack on somebody. Even though, it, I mean, from what I can observe and from what I know of my colleagues, usually it comes out of a place of concern for people who have, like, pretty serious mental health um, struggles. Um, I don't want to say that yeah, they have issues or something like that. Like there's a lot going on in their lives and in their minds. And, and it's, I don't know, it's, it's more of a question of what is really going on and what is the best treatment, not trying to come out and swinging, like you're not a person and you suck or, or anything like that. Yeah. Cause one thing about the article that she makes from the get-go is that she's speaking in a very specific domain like it's a very limited set like she's she's not addressing the whole conversation she's saying very specifically no, you know uh i you know i have these identities i have these opinions and i'm talking about specifically what's happening in like pediatric care and that is the domain that i've seen and i'm horrified this and, and something need, needs to happen here so this article was published february 2023 uh, two questions. Have you seen anything sort of shift in the way that you've heard conversations since this was published? Not saying that this was a catalyst for anything, but like how has it evolved over the course of one year? And then second question, what do you think 
drives this on the medical side? Is it all ideology or are there other interests involved? That's, those are two very good questions. And you might have to remind me of the second one if I get too far on a tangent on the first one. Um, the, so in answer to the first question, um, what has happened in the, the last year, um, the Missouri Attorney General has started investigating the clinic, but nothing has really come about because there is definitely, there was definitely kind of this closing of ranks in terms of the professional societies that uh, medical societies that are at least in theory, very supportive of transitioning. And so they, um, kind of par for the course with a lot of political issues, they tend to, to pick the stance that's going to allow them the most leeway in terms of what they would phrase as like professional medical judgment. So they'll come down very strongly on people like Jamie Reed for questioning it or for saying, oh, we don't actually know what our own standard of care is and maybe we're harming people. They don't like that type of um, commentary, especially in a Republican state, because they're afraid of a legal ban coming down. That's that's kind of their worst case scenario. And that doesn't mean that they don't share some of the same hesitations that she has or that other practitioners have. It just means that their 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 like public facing statements are going to be pretty uh, unsympathetic toward articles like this. I mean, I think too, I don't know that this really changed anything about what the I mean, maybe all it meant was that the university clinic now has a bunch of yes men because they're pushing out people and giving them poor performance reviews if they have any questioning. I guess that seemed to be my impression of what was happening there. I don't think there's been any other high profile resignations or or court cases, not that I've heard of anyway. I was just say just a little bit searching it looks like partially in response to this article the Missouri legislature actually banned like gender affirming care in some for youth. In, I think in some they context. tried and then it became a court case. That was, that oh, was, is that I what happened? Okay. Yeah. I, but okay. I actually did not look it up before this podcast. I should have, but um, yeah, cause, cause it's a, it's a very touchy issue in medicine in general to have legislators who often don't know anything about healthcare <laughs> to come in and say like, this is what is and isn't allowed. Um, and it, there's a few different examples of that, and pediatric gender medicine is one of them, um, because oftentimes the legislators don't even know. Uh, yeah, they they're, they can write laws that are very vague, or they, they don't really understand what it is that they, they almost want to ban the attitude <laughs> instead of <laughs> anything concrete. So, um, but yeah, there was like a a back. I do remember there was a back and forth in the legislature where they had like a lot of really passionate testimony from teenagers who identified as transgender and their parents. And there was a bunch of news articles about people who decided to move away from the state of Missouri because they felt like it wasn't friendly to transgender children and that sort of thing. But um, I can't, I don't know. I'd have to Google it to see what the legal status of it is. A quick Google foo, at least as of August 29th, um, it looks like uh, the gender affirming medical care ban is still in effect. And this is as of okay. August 29th. Apparently, judge denied the request to halt it. Okay. All and right. the law is set to expire in 2027. Now, who knows? Maybe some, uh, that was that was August. Who knows what's happened since then? Oh, I, I haven't checked it but, since then. So, <laughs> As yeah. a guy in the tech field, I very much... Uh, your, your, your statement on a bunch of legislators that know nothing about health care... I remember my coworkers and I listening to the um, congressional hearing with Mark Zuckerberg, and it was there was something just hilarious about a bunch of people who clearly have no idea what they're talking about trying to make sense of these sort of things. Oh, it's mm -hmm. it'd be hilarious if it weren't so, um, I guess, terrifying. Yeah, because the problem too with this um, 
topic is that so many legislators that want to ban it, they would love to ban this for adults too. Like Jamie Reed is talking about children and teenagers, but they think that this entire enterprise is mistaken for anybody that ha suffers from this kind of thing. And so, so that also is where you get, but like with a lot of things in healthcare, the kind of mature minor debate in terms of children are still someone that we exert a lot more control over. Um, in terms of trying to do things that are best for them instead of letting them do things that are we think are bad for them. So, uh, which is kind of our attitude about, or our, I'm saying, like in healthcare, even if we are not sure if something is the best course of action, there can be an attitude of, well, the, it's their life and they know themselves best. And so we should just let them go ahead and do that. And that has kind of bled over into teenagers, but there's always this debate about whether that's if you want to be more paternalistic with them. It is, and then the second, oh, oh go for it. Oh, uh, sorry, just real quick. It is things like this that, um, so at the end of Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self, Carl Truman does have his kind of three prophecies, we'll, we'll call them, and his, the last of them is that um, the backlash towards this sort of lazy fair attitude, especially around children, is going to get increase is going to increase. Um, and this seems to be somewhat of the forerunner of of that. Yeah, and I think it's also because this particular part of healthcare, and Jamie talks about this in the article, it's very um dependent on self-awareness, like self-diagnosis and self-knowledge, which is not true for other mental health conditions. I actually don't know, I can't really I, I was thinking about it. I can't think of anything that is so um where you, you, the, just the patient tells you what problem they have and you say okay here's you know fine i accept it and you know there's usually a little bit more of an objective piece to it now not to say that there's never a subjective piece but you know this this is a little bit weird that way and so yeah anyway what were you saying sam oh, i was just gonna say not only in mental health care but like any health care i can't think of anything like that where the patient can prescribe the or can can dictate what they have, the severity, and what needs to be done about it. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, there. That's it's it's this interesting shift in healthcare. As I think people start to see healthcare professionals as just technicians of their body or their mind, where they're they're the one that decides what um what they want out of their body. Whether and this is not just correcting something that's wrong, but even like enhancements, like having a surgery to have your legs be longer or something like that, cosmetic surgeries. Um, and so, and they just kind of see the healthcare professionals, well, you're just there to make sure that like, it doesn't really go badly wrong, but I know what I want. And this is, and you get people who try to dictate things. And we're usually more resistant to that in other fields because, well, we mostly just because we see a lot of things go wrong. And so we think that there has to be like a good solid risk benefit analysis to really merit the interventions. But for something like this, it seems like the risk benefit analysis collapses down to they say there's going to be this big benefit and they say that they're going to kill themselves if they don't. And so, yeah, it, it becomes more simplistic. And then the second question uh, asking about motivations. Oh, yes. Yeah. Um, I think that there is the motivation of you see a young person in emotional distress and you don't know what to do to help and you hear an echo chamber that says this is what you do to help and so you do it, um, even if you have personal qualms about it. And then I think the secondary motivation is um, financial. It's it's lucrative. So if you think that it's going to help somebody's emotional distress and it makes you money, it's, I don't know, pays not to question it too much. Sounds like that could be a problem. But speaking of problem we have one final question for you allison what is the problem with reading 
I've already answered this. It's the problem is that you always want to read more. There's always more to read. Beautiful. <laughs> well, Allison, thank you for coming on and uh, discussing this article with us. Uh, we'll, we'll link the article, so I encourage everyone listening to go check it out. And Allison, next time we have a bioethical conundrum, we'll talk to you then. Sounds good. For everyone here at The Problem With Reading, I'm Sam. I'm Steven. I'm Brevin. And I'm Allison. Hello, everyone, and welcome to yet another article with The Problem With Reading. I'm Steven. I'm Brevin. And I'm Sam. Hello, Sam. Well, it is good to have you here at our uh, our lovely little potluck of articles. And before we get into the article, just out of curiosity, at a potluck, you drink things. What are you drinking? I am drinking um, a beverage with another story. It's a um, it's some wine. It's from Villiard Wineries uh, in uh, Chile, 2019 Syrah, which is very tasty. We, I, I this wine was was thrust upon me. I did not intend to buy it, but I walked into a local wine shop just perusing and um, and they had a full wine tasting going and, and handed me wine. And before I knew it, I was four tastings in and this one was absolutely delicious. So, and then of course they hit me with that and it's 10% off because you taste it today. So that was the end. Um, but it's very tasty. We had it with a, with a pot roast last night. So yeah, enjoying that some wine. Amazing. Well, we all know the saying, some men are born with wine, some men become wine, and others have great wine thrust upon them. So I, I, I see where we're at. <laughs> um, but speaking of seeing where we're at, uh, where are we at as far as articles are concerned? Yeah, so the article that I picked is like uh, both the ones that you guys picked. Familiar to the podcast, it's We Are Repagonies. Repaganizing by Louise Perry. And this one we discussed just a few episodes ago. I think it was episode what four four fifteen. So only a few ago, but it's it's very good. And so I strongly recommend it. The listener, if you have not listened to the episode, go back and give it a listen and definitely go read this article in first things. Super short summary of the article is that um Louise Perry is first of all not a Christian, not writing from a Christian perspective or perspective but she is writing about the contrasting worldviews of christianity and paganism and uh particularly the cult or the, the cult of death and the um saturation of death and uh discounting human life that manifested in basically all um ancient pagan societies and how we're seeing that crop up in our current society we're seeing these patterns and this orientation towards particularly infants and and um and pre-infants and also the elderly or the disabled and so it was an incredibly disturbing article i really haven't haven't stopped thinking about it since reading it especially her first bit where she looks at an archaeologist who says that you can always find a brothel uh, an ancient brothel um in an archaeological dig by finding the the mass grave of, of babies behind it which is just horrifying so really good article we don't need to talk about it in great length because we did on that episode but um do you guys have any any more recent thoughts or anything you'd like to reshare just i i think the uh the poem that is read at the very beginning that is basically a poesized version of that fact that 
the finding of baby's bones is how you find a brothel um or an ancient brothel that is and that that poem just still i it, it it's echoing my mind right now it, it it hasn't left me and yeah that that really that, that that sank in um and just the overall thrust of i mean i'm a christian and i therefore think it's a good thing but just landing home the idea that christianity really is kind of a force of good in the world and the loss of it would be kind of a tragedy uh it, this article did a good job at kind of elucidating that in much more concrete ways that I'm still trying to, I, um, I will either bring it up in the future or uh, I'll have brought it up in the past, but I mentioned the Northmen um, as a vision of what a completely non-Christian mythos looks like, and it's horrifying. Um, and I think this part, this article does a good job at elucidating that. Well, because really all you have is you can um, basically try to control nature and, or, 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 or try to, to, um, you know, live with it and a, it, it, it kind of kind of get around the natural limits versus the idea behind Christianity is to um, at least what what she's pointing out is it is it allows people to live in harmony with their natural limits while also having um, grace compassion on those who are um, particularly vulnerable. Yeah, I mean this article is great. Um, I enjoyed rereading it for this episode. I think just maybe three quick thoughts. Uh, first is the image of Christianity as this force uh, in a sea of paganism, or rather in a forest of paganism, and it's been sort of hacking out a clearing with some very alternative ideas in terms of, you know, the sanctity of life from conception to natural death, you know, the role of women, things like that. Part of this this string of pearls or, or, or of beads of all these connected ideas in which it's different from sort of the, the default you know, sort of like nature red in tooth and claw, to which paganism is sort of like the human parallel. Um, and that image of, you know, just Christianity battling it out with the encroaching forest is a great image. Um, but it also begs the question, which is my second point, which is sort of like how, like, what is paganism? Like, what are the limits of it? What's the concept? Like, how is it different from something like enlightenment, which somehow at its most extreme ends that we see today seems to like loop right back around to being pagan, even though theoretically it should be the most furthest stream. So that's like an interesting set of thoughts that I would love to look more into. And the final thought that I had is just, uh, this is again, an interesting point because you guys are often talking about like, you know, trying to find allies and like movements that are like aligned enough with Christianity that they can be fellow travelers on some things. And the author of this article is, I believe an agnostic, um, or something like that, who nonetheless sees Christianity as a force for good, um, which is always, it's always interesting finding those people. And often I, I'm frustrated with them. Um, but in this case, she wrote a very good article. So I will give her a pass at, at least this one time. To your second point, briefly, um, I brought up the Northmen, but another really interesting narrative of this would be in the original uh, movie, The Wicker Man. Um, it's, it's a story of a, a society basically that, was once Christian and re-embraced paganism and kind of the the horrors that that follow. Really fascinating case study um, in kind of what what is the line between Christianity and paganism? How did the two interact? Um, and it's also just an excellent movie. So, just for the record, The Wicker Man. If you haven't seen it, quite good. Not the Nick Cage one. Not the not the Beast one. All right, uh, Sam. Anything else? I don't think so. Go and if you're interested in this, go read the article and then go listen to the other episode. But I would say the article is so good that um, if you had to choose between one or the other, read the article. 
It was an excellent read. But speaking of reading, uh, we do have one question for you, Sam. What is the problem with reading? Man, I mean, I, I think I'll echo a theme that you're going to hear throughout this is that it, it takes a long time and the barrier to starting only seems to get higher. Well, that is indeed quite the problem. Um, but uh, I'm not going to do another weird transition. Uh, that is indeed quite the problem. Uh, but Sam, I think at this point we're out of time and we're going to move on to the next uh, next article. So thank you for the article. And for everyone here at the Problem with Reading Podcast, I'm Stephen. I'm Brevin. And I'm Sam. Hello, everyone, and welcome to yet another article from The Problem with Reading. I'm Brevin. I'm Steven. And I'm Chris. That's right. It's Chris, veteran of some of our greatest episodes, including our foray into Lord of the Rings, as well as space. Uh, but Chris, more importantly, what are you drinking right now? I am having myself a steaming mug of peach ginger tea from the people at the Republic of Tea. I have always said that ginger is an underrated flavor. I think people are just kind of afraid of it. I'm going to disagree with you there. I don't know. Ginger just doesn't quite do it for me. And there's one of the fearful ones. But anyway, Chris, you are here to tell us about the best, the pinnacle, the peak, the absolute most amazing article you read this year. Uh, what is this article called? Yeah, so the article is called Meet the Quote-Unquote Elite Couples Breeding to Save Mankind. Fantastic. Well, that just fills my heart with joy hearing that and definitely doesn't freeze it into a small clump of death. Uh, but anyway, I will just do a quick summary of this article and then, then we can talk about why this was your top article of the year. So this is about a bunch of Silicon Valley nerds who basically think that they are God's chosen children and want to repopulate the earth because they recognize like all good normal people do, that birth rates are falling and this is a problem if we want to keep the human race going. Um, this movement is very particular. They call themselves pro-natalism, uh, but it's sort of like a pro-natalism TM. It, it, it's not really like the generalized term that's been associated over time with the Catholic Church, which is just to say that like babies are good and we should have more of them. Life is a good thing. Um, and like we shouldn't stop having babies because of climate change or something stupid like that. Uh, but this is like a very specific subset of that. And it has ties to things like effective altruism of Sam Bankman-Fried fame, links to lots of tech companies, you know, trying to make artificial wombs and embryo selection startups and Elon Musk um, and all sorts of various other Silicon Valley billionaires. And the two main people that it talks about are this Simone and Malcolm Collins, uh, who have pronatalism.org. They managed to get it before a good Catholic did. Under their the umbrella of their nonprofit, the Pragmatist Foundation, which is just a horrifying name for anything. Um, so uh, basically, their whole thing is we want to have a future where we have lots of babies. We want people to have as many babies as they want. They're in favor of in vitro fertilization, things like that. Um, you know, em embryo selection. They want to basically, or well, part of their goal. I think it's accurate to say is that. The Nazis are having lots of kids, so we need like normal, well-adjusted people to have lots of kids too. And there is actually one thing that we can look at just to sort of give them a, a good idea of sort of the kind of pronatalist people that these are. 
uh, which is what they named their kids, uh, which is their five-month-old daughter named Titan Invictus, and then their sons named Torsten and Octavian. So basically, these are people who just basic who live inside Warhammer 40k and left the rest of us <laughs> behind. Uh, but Chris, why is this your favorite article of the year? Well, if if it's not clear from my laughter, um, there's definitely a entertainment value to to the article. Um, but then there's a bit of like a sobering realization that people like this exist, and and I think it was um, it was an important read for me on that front. And actually, I kind of stumbled upon the article after uh, there was a natalism conference in or pronatalism conference in Austin where I live, and I was interested in attending. Um, of course the tickets were like a thousand dollars. Um, and the, the second day's seminars were all invite only. Uh, and all of this is starting to make sense with, with some of the, you know, the quotes from the article. Uh, one of them, I, I might as well read it now, which I thought was particularly funny, which speaks to the kind of elitism. The reason why you see Silicon Valley people disproportionately being drawn to this issue, the, this, uh, you know, declining birth rates issue is that they're obsessed with data enough and wealthy enough to be looking at things. I didn't even truncate that. That's what they said. They said that they're wealthy enough to be looking at things. Uh, and I think that's pretty funny. Uh, so yeah, I, I saw that this conference was in Austin. I was you know somewhat interested in it. So I was looking at the names on the list and I was messaging some like-minded friends about it. Um, and I, and one, one of my friends was like, oh, I, saw, I heard about that. Read this article. We don't have much in common with these people. So for that for that reason, this article was very instrumental in making sure that I'm not, you know, I'm not associating myself with pronatalism TM. Um, I can just be pronatalism as it was for centuries uh, and be be content. So, so as far as the entertainment value, I think some of my favorite parts about it that I think are pretty funny. Um, well, so so Brevin touched on it, but the the parts where they're kind of comparing traditional pronatalists to Nazis and how you know him and his wife's pro- entire project is to kind of get out in front of the 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 Nazi side of the pronatalists and start making sure that like gay and lesbian people start having kids and people who demonstrate kind of more liberal progressive uh, political beliefs are start having to start having more kids um, so that way they can you know combat the what's sure to be the you know genetic rise of people who exhibit concert well conservative what they call nazi tendencies or just the hordes of amish that are outbreeding everyone by exactly. a of like 20 yeah so that's like their entire project and that that whole thing is just like i'm gonna go to bed smiling thinking that there's people who whose mission it is is to try to breed more liberals so that so that the uh hordes of catholic kids don't overtake them in the gene pool um so yeah i think uh th- that pretty well makes my case for the uh entertainment value there's some other quotes i guess like uh, he's he kind of he kind of says the quiet part out loud here. He says um, the only things proven to increase birth rates are poverty and the oppression of women. Uh, and and so I think what what's so funny about that to me is that he's kind of admitting that he's calling like the 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 things that really increase birth rates. He's just like not considering them because they're oppression of women. You know, like oh like we need abortion. That's obvious to him. And so like. We can't have that. That's oppression of women, even though that increases birth rates. Can't have that. Um, and, and so, like, his solution is all this like technological, you know, IVF, like Brevin mentioned, uh, artificial wombs, things like this. Um, and it's all kind of like 
it's all kind of i guess you'd call it like bio libertarian feminism where they're just it's all about like self-actualization um and his wife even uh is sort of the only reason she was ever convinced to have kids at all was that uh her husband told her that she could keep her career and so even even his own wife who's also invested in this movement this pronatalism movement admits that her career was always more important than having kids it doesn't even scream to me to be that like pronatal pronatalism when you know you you say that out loud you know, it's funny, Brevin, you said something about, uh, you know, getting out ahead the Nazis to have well-adjusted people having children. So I have, reading this article, I, I don't think uh, the well-adjusted people are doing so well at, at this point, um, because I, I couldn't see any in the in the article. Yeah, the, like, the whole idea, to, to Chris's point, the, the idea that, like, children are tools for political, prop, or, like, propaganda or agendas or power, it's it just one of the most perverse weird takes on what it is to have kids um it's honestly just frankly quite disgusting the idea that like yeah we're gonna have kids primarily so we keep progressive ideals alive like okay well that's not great it is like a very interesting thought which is to say that like obviously and and i've written like an actual book review article about this for first things back in the day but like the idea of the birth rate falling is is really downstream of the actual problem, which is just an incorrect and impoverished view of, you know, the joy of life and children. Like, these people don't actually care about kids qua kids. They care about a grand idea of civilization supporting, you know, their tech startups, uh, and then also their kids being genetically superior to everything else. Like, they basically just want Gattaca. They don't actually want like a happy civilization. Yeah, I think there's a well, several times uh, Margaret Atwood is brought up in the article, um, you know, kind of comparing the conservative or I'll say the more conservative uh, approaches to pronatalism to um, Margaret Atwood. And so I think what's ironic to me is that I I can't think of anything more uh, Margaret Atwood than like you know, wombs, like artificial wombs and like, you know, what's effectively going to be like a baby making factory that that is able to kind of um, separate women from the like, from the, you know, the gestation of kids. That and is so, literally from the first chapter of Brave New World. Like, not making that up at all. The baby making factory. That is the first chapter of Brave New World. Exactly. So it's, it's so, it's so weird that they would, you know, they would complain or they would i guess disparage the more conservative pronatalism tactics as being from the brave new world when they themselves are kind of espousing this baby making factory type of solution listen all i know is that the children yearn for the minds and there aren't enough of them and so if artificial wombs is the way to get there that's how we'll get there Stephen, any final thoughts just they named their daughter Titan Invictus because they said something to the effect of, like, they noticed that a girl with a feminine name isn't going to have as much power in the boardroom or what have you, which I'm sure some studies have shown that. But, like, you think your daughter named Titan Invictus is going to be taken seriously ever? Like, I mean, that just makes me think of, like, Arrested Development, the magician saying, we demand to be taken seriously. That's, that's, what, that's what the name Titan Invictus says to me. Ugh. Well, yeah, I, I mean, I could just imagine reading that resume and just being like, all right, somebody's role-playing in real life. Someone's LARPing, and they need to stop. Uh, but speaking of reading, Chris, we have one 
very important question for you. What is the problem with reading? Mm. The problem with reading is it takes too damn long and there's too many books on my bookshelf. That's fair enough. Thank you so much for being on, Chris. Uh, It's been a pleasure. We wish you a Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year. Thanks, guys. You too. Hello, everyone, and welcome to yet another article from The Problem with Reading. I'm Brevin. I'm Stephen. And I'm Sam. And our article provider this time is none other than Stephen himself. Uh, But before that, Stephen, what are you drinking right now? Uh, Right now, I'm having a lovely generic version of LaCroix called Bubbly. It is uh, strawberry flavored, and it vaguely reminds me of strawberries. But of course, that's all it does. That's Indeed. Good. Well, the memory of strawberries is an important thing if we think back to some previous articles, just we throwing have. that out there. But speaking of articles, Stephen, I think you have one for us. I do indeed. I'm glad you brought this up. Uh, So we were obviously talking about what our favorite articles were, and I remember there being kind of a a one-two punch of articles that I read. I think we were actually discussing them. One of you sent an interesting one. And the one that got me interested was an opinion piece in the Washington Post. uh, Opinion, men are lost, here's a map out of the wilderness. And it had a lot of really interesting kind of thoughts um, uh, that that were intriguing. But combination uh, that it's now locked behind a paywall and I can't get at the content. um, And then also being limited to only one article. There was a combination with another article that came out in First Things called Man Up by Peter J. Lightheart. And that's the one I decided to go over. Uh, So this uh, was a simple review article on the book by Nancy Piercy called The Toxic War on Masculinity. And I think the reason I liked this article the most, it it kind of stuck the most in my mind, was it did a really interesting job at bracketing kind of two categorizations of men um, or of masculinity, as it were, the quote unquote real man and quote unquote good man. And the real man is kind of the tough, strong, aggressive, competitive, show no weakness, show no emotion, get all the guns, gold, girls that you can, doesn't matter who you step on. Like, there's, there's just kind of an aspect of masculinity that, is, that, that, that captures. Um, but good man is basically all of that, but baptized. Um, good man is characterized by honor, duty, integrity, willingness to sacrifice, basically everything that real man or all the traits of real man, but sublimated, I suppose, to use a bit of Freudian imagery. Real man was really challenged by Christianity, according to Lightheart and Piercy. Uh, Christianity elevated formerly feminine traits like compassion, kindness, and gentleness, things that were looked down upon at times. These became virtues for everybody, things, things to be... Um, to be pursued by all. The unstoic master who wept at Lazarus's tomb would have been viewed by the Roman culture as weak. Instead, he showed that men, it is okay to weep over a friend who has died. Um, and Christianity still calls men to this. Um, and, and, and there's some, some statistics that are, are borne out, uh, such as church-going evangelicals being the least likely to demonstrate toxic, toxic masculine traits, um, such as domestic violence. Though, notably, um, and this I, I come to think of the, uh, the stronger the archangel, the fiercer the archangel, uh, notably, evangelical men who aren't active in church are the most likely to act out the real man's script, though... The way the article's phrased, it's it's ambiguous if that means the domestic abuse statistic or if it's just kind of an add-on. So I'll add that as a note. 
But basically, goes over a very brief history. Um, it locates the Industrial Revolution as the nexus for the paradigm shift for men kind of post-Christianity or kind of in the Christian era, that before the Industrial Revolution, most Americans were farmers. And so fathers, mothers, and children all worked together. But after the Industrial Revolution, the uh, kind of workplace became bifurcated. Most fathers went off to work and most mothers and children stayed home. And so men became associated with kind of the secular work and women with religious domesticity. And after this, reform movements would, would pop up all over the place kind of asserting that men are actually real men they're the secular the they're the outside and it doesn't most of them did not have a concept of good man that there is something kind of at the core of masculinity that's still worth pursuing but just kind of assuming that real men are what real men are and we need to kind of repress that sort of thing um the i i get the image of repression from the other article i mentioned earlier though we won't go into it because i'm sure i'm already going uh, too long-winded the, the the overall thrust is that there is something kind of at the at the core of masculinity that's good but needs to be baptized. And I think I found this article the most encouraging because I I, f I found myself pretty irritated with kind of both sides of the culture war around masculinity. You see kind of the the just blanket statements thrown out of about toxic masculinity. Men are trash. Men are awful. Et cetera. Et cetera. And indeed. I, I've seen plenty, like I was horrified. I think we all were by the, for example, Me Too movement, just showing case study after case study of women being harassed, harangued and, and, and whatnot. But to paint men with such a broad brush was rather disheartening, discouraging, and also just not, not in keeping with what I had observed of my own dear friends who all, most of whom are men and all of whom treat women with respect and whatnot. But then also getting equally irritated with kind of the pushback movement that kind of just saying no, but men are men are great or men need to lean into this kind of more toxic masculine nature. There's some, there seems to be something missing. And I think this provided a nice language for that. Um, I'll conclude with kind of the, the last remark, uh, quote, men's movements today frequently present men as victims of a feminized culture. Piercy will have none of it. She challenges us to stop moaning, recognize our God-given stature and power, take responsibility for ourselves and our families, and man up, end quote. And I thought that was a very kind of wholesome conclusion to um, to wrap up with. Quit, quit moaning, quit blaming society for quote-unquote feminizing men or what have you, and just do what you need to do. I, I thought that was quite the question. Yeah, I mean, it's it's a good article. It's, it's short and sweet. I like this one. I mean, it, it kind of ties into actually the article that I'm going to be mentioning and a lot of stuff in first things of just kind of looking at ways in which Christianity like is is good for the world on the world's terms, which is an interesting I, move that both these articles make, and, and particularly this one where it looks at why the idea of the good man is so positive and really and attributes that to the image of Christ, which like, yeah, I can't think of any other examples that we would have that don't aren't a play on that ideal i i think it also did i i forget if i brought it up on the podcast before but um the northman that came out about a year and a half ago as kind of an oh, alternate yeah. image of masculinity and it's horrifying i remember being very conflicted on if i liked it or hated it uh, as far as the movie itself was concerned and i think i hated it primarily because i think there was a kernel there that like no this is actually this is a very self-consistent mythology and it it's horrifying um, this is a, or sorry, this is an, an, an image, a vision. This is a vision of 
um, of what men can be, and it's horrifying. Yeah. I would very much prefer the masculinity that Christ presents. I like the article. I think the troublesome kernel that I haven't figured out how to relate it, how to properly relate things in like my mental maps. But so the article talks about how you know that the um, problem is is almost structural, right? Which is the industrial revolution, and then you have this division of labor, and then sort of like a lot of the pathologies of the good man versus real man are sort of downstream of that. Like it, it develops from the technological change, but then the solution that she presents is on the individual level, which from a person to person standpoint makes sense. But I always wonder with this kind of argument, because this, this, this does sort of seem to be a theme in like a lot of the books that we've read. It, it's, it's almost like a very fast, like a very fast version of, you know, reading after virtue or something else where you have like, here is this problem. Here is this, you know, precipitating, event where everything switches and then but then how do we get back there's like kind of no answer aside from like in individual action so like that's the one part that i feel like like yes i hope and uh would intend that i would be the type of person that would take these actions um in order to be the good man rather than the real man right but on the other hand for anyone for anyone of like like say that precisely meets my level of will ability race or whatever uh, for anyone who's below that, like, can't we do anything to help them, you know? The reason that this that we keep talking about this and why um, in that other article that we uh, read by, by Christine Emba on the same topic that we covered on, on the podcast, it's, it's such a fruitful uh, point of conversation because the problem is just so intractable and, like... Yeah, I mean, I, I think I, I am with you in that it is kind of frustrating to present the problem as structural and then present the solution as individual. But I think as with a lot of societal problems, the writers are kind of they're writing to an audience that wants at least something to do. And no, I mean, no one can individually change a societal structure on their own. And so I, I at the very least appreciate them giving a lay of the landscape and then saying, well, now, you know, the challenges ahead of you. At least you can do something with some amount of awareness of what these challenges are and why you perhaps are seeing some of the phenomenon that you see. So I appreciate that, though. I do think that is a weakness with, I mean, frankly, just a lot of the books that we read. It's just describing really massive, intractable societal problems and like, well, good luck. It does seem to be something that's pretty consistent, um, but also uh, that doesn't diminish our enjoyment of it. Uh, nonetheless, nonetheless. I would say that that is potentially what you could consider a problem. But Stephen, what is the problem with reading? That is an excellent question. I remember that you were going to ask me this like probably about five seconds before you asked me. So what is the problem with reading? I'm actually, I think I'm going to echo or uh, foreshadow one of our guests and say that there's too much of it to do and too little time to do it. Uh, I wish I wish I had more time slash energy to uh, to get all that reading done. So it's uh, it's a good thing to do, but too much. Indeed, it is. Uh, and with that, thank you, Stephen, for your contribution for your article of the year, uh, and for everyone here at the Problem with Reading podcast. I'm Brevin. I'm Stephen, and I'm Sam. Hello, everyone, and welcome to an article from The Problem with Reading. I'm Brevin. I'm Sam. And I'm Chase. And here we are with Chase, veteran of our AI episode earlier this year. 
Uh, and Chase, you brought us an article. I asked you, you know, what's the best article that you read this year? And and, and you brought me, I mean, you fulfilled the assignment um, one way or the other. But Chase, what are you drinking right now? Uh, nothing currently. Um, I have work tomorrow, so I don't like to party too hard. Plus, you get me too much of that eggnog at your Christmas party. And so I'm, I'm kind of feeling it today. Fair enough. Uh, most of the time, people are drinking something. Uh, but you are, uh, you know, a unique man who brought us a unique article. And I'm not going to read the title of the article because it gives a little bit too much away. So I instead uh, will read the lead line, uh, which is, quote, the self-described gay furry hackers of Siege Sec are back, this time boasting they've broken into America's biggest nuclear power lab's computer system and stolen records on thousands of employees. Some of that data has already been leaked, it appears. Uh, so, Chase, uh, uh, gay furry hackers? Question mark? Yeah, so one of the things that made this article the most interesting for me this year um, was traditionally when, uh, as part of my job, I have to keep abreast of cyber news and, you know, the famous hacks that are going on, especially anytime they target something this big and this sophisticated as a nuclear lab, right? Um, and traditionally, we try to put threat actors into these groups where they are either financially motivated or politically motivated or have something to gain by accessing the data and selling it. And that's what kind of makes this weird is that these guys seem to be in it for the pure chaos that uh, a hack like this causes. So it's it's pretty funny, but it's also really interesting from a from a threat intelligence point of view. So in it for pure chaos, but this facility, the Idaho National Laboratory, is run by the Department of Energy uh, and the Office of Nuclear Energy. They have mm. like 6,000 employees. They have a bunch of nuclear reactors. Like this is not like this is a serious location with lots of very serious and important things that go on there but chase these 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 hackers they they demanded something in return uh for their cooperation to like stop releasing the data uh what do they want yeah so they said and i quote um we're willing to make a deal with the uh inl with the uh is it indiana idaho national lab um if they research creating irl cat girls we will take down this post so they're pretty motivated to uh, have an expression of their uh, furry inclinations, it looks like, from, from what we're hearing from SiegeSec. <laughs> the uh, article is at pains to note that while the creation of real cat-human-female hybrids is a meme on certain corners of the internet, uh, it does not, as it so happens, uh, that's not a specialty of this particular laboratory. Um, so maybe a slight mistargeting. <laughs> That we know of. That we know of. I mean, fair enough. Fair enough. They could know um, more than we know. You never know. Okay. Idaho's not a poppin' state. You never know what they're doing over there. You know, corn gets boring. I mean, fair enough, but I don't know if my first instinct or second or thousandth instinct would be to hack a laboratory to try and get me some uh, cat-human mutants. Uh, but to each his own, I suppose. So, Chase, in... In the industry, are are you seeing? Is there is there an increase in like in meme attacks or trolling attacks like this, or is this just kind of a one off thing? So you see them from time to time, uh, mostly targeting lower level um, threat vectors or th or targets. Um, traditionally, you'll see things like um, denial of service attacks against small businesses because they didn't serve the right kind of cupcake. Really the biggest threat right now is ransomware. That's where a virus gets in and locks down and encrypts all of your computer. And they may or may not have the key that they may or may not sell you 
if you give them a bunch of money. But there's no real consistency between threat groups. It depends really on the group that's kind of, they have to establish themselves as being a reputable vendor of your own data, so to speak. Whereas a group like SiegeSec, uh, they've hit uh, NATO facilities before. So they're they're clearly organized. They're clearly talented in some regard as, as far as threat actors go. Um, and their focus seems to be on really just kind of disruption and chaos, uh, specifically targeting uh, U.S. and Western allies um, organizations. So in my mind, reading this um, as a professional, I see this as they were out to get the data and leak it regardless. Um, whether or not they wanted IRL catgirls, they might just be having fun with the mission, but ultimately their purpose is to just get in there and create chaos. Um, in terms of a, t a rise in attack on memes, I haven't really seen much of that. There's been a couple this year, um, but nothing that I would say is is worth the resources just to have a funny. What we do have to say is that if there are cat girls living in a lab somewhere, uh, where do you think where do you think the most likely locations for that research to be done is? Oh, that's uh, I would say Silicon Valley. Um, there are a disproportionate number of furries in IT, and I'm unsure why or how but there seems to be quite a bit of them. So I would say that's likely, you know, um, over in California, but there's no telling. Okay, perfect. Well, I think we all know a little bit more than we did yesterday. Maybe it's knowledge we wish we didn't have. Uh, but Chase, before we let you go, we have a single question. Sam, would you like to ask it to him? Chase, what is the problem with reading? Sometimes you learn too much. And I think that sums it up. So for everyone here at the Problem With Reading podcast, I'm Brevin. I'm Sam. And I'm Chase. Hello, everyone. Welcome to yet another article from the Problem With Reading. I'm Sam. I'm Steven. And I'm Brevin. And that was the first time I've given the intro in four years. So... Brevin, come save us eventually. Um, I think, Brevin, you are, are going to save us here with your article, right? Yes, but before that, Sam, I'd love to tell you about what I'm <laughs> drinking right now. Oh, yes, you would. Brevin, what are you drinking? <laughs> I'm drinking some Topo Chico mineral water carbonated uh, that's imported, and it's tasty, and it's mineral water. You're drinking something non-alcoholic, disgusting, gross, cringe. You're despicable. Wow, Stephen, way to be a bully about it. Yeah, Steven, geez. Just, Come on. yeah, I know. Just Look, overly sobriety, hard sobriety and temperance is a virtue, all right? What are you what are you yeah, saying? I, yeah, what's your problem, man? <laughs> Screw the both of you. Yeah, what's your problem with reading, man? Uh well, I don't know about uh, I don't I don't know what you're referencing, but my article that I'd love to talk about is called The Age of Average by Alex Mural. And if that sounds familiar to regulars of the pod, it's because I used this as an article sometime earlier this year. This came out, I think, in March 2023. But it is the article, I think, that has sort of defined my 2023. It's one of the best ones that I've read. And I think it's because it's an article that helped put to words and confirm something that I thought that I saw and that I like subconsciously believed and that would like resurface from time to time. But I like I didn't quite know how to say it. But this article pulls it all together and confirms, no, I'm not crazy. Everything does look exactly the same, and it's all bad. So the article's basic argument is, over time and for a variety of reasons, uh, a whole bunch of disparate fields, from film to fashion to architecture, advertising, all these creative fields have basically become defined by a 
each with their own set of convention and cliche that there's less and less distinctiveness over time in, in every field things look more and more the same which he calls the age of average and it's unfortunate because this article is a very visual article um and it's basically him pulling together images from uh in a, in a bunch of different subcategories and just saying look that these all look the same but more specifically he then talks to experts and pulls in articles and information in each of those fields uh in order to highlight that uh yes you're not crazy if you think that every single coffee shop in you know a major metropolitan area looks exactly the same which is to say like edison bulbs white walls raw wood uh bare brick open shelving like all of these uh what's what's the combination of things they say it's a rough hewn rawness of industrialism with the elegant minimalism of mid-century design sort of ski lodgy maybe and it's something that lots of people have seen like i think the uh like the modern international air style is sort of the classic one that you can go to an airbnb in many cities all over the world and they look exactly the same they all have you know those white plastic chairs with little wood uh legs sticking out they have the white circle table uh the furniture is sort of square and boxy you have the wood you have the brick um so he talks about interior design coffee shops and in airbnb he talks about um regression to the mean for uh city skylines so there's less and less distinctiveness in city skylines although this was a point that we actually all sort of had different thoughts on some of us thought that cities are pretty distinctive still um but i think where he has a a stronger point is talking about apartment blocks and these sort of five-story standard alternating color um sort of uh, very like heavily facaded five over one architecture that is just a ubiquitous across city centers and i know i've seen it all over virginia i've seen it in washington i've seen it in michigan i've seen it everywhere that i've gone and there's less and less uh placeness there's less and less rootedness of of cities over time and he gives a whole bunch of examples of it of, of this he talks about cars and the wind tunnel effect both that cars are all like slowly converging towards a particular set of limited shapes because of aerodynamics but also that they've all started becoming the same color so you can't just say that it's for the sake of efficiency and even in car logos they're sort of all becoming bland flat one-dimensional um you know sans serif um and then there's uh instagram and you know high cheekbones sort of hollow cheeks big eyes eyelashes uh that's uh, the kim kardashian look that's both either by uh, instagram filter or by surgery in more extreme cases and then you talked about book design movies uh you know like almost 75 to 100 percent of the time being either existing ip or existing franchises um so there's a lot that i could say it's hard to sort of express it because it, it is such a visual article but in conclusion uh his, his argument is simply that there is so much more homogeneity now than there has been in the future it's converging it's converging fast and you're not crazy for thinking that 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 is the case and i that is why this article was my top one of the year this article hits home a little bit closer than it did last time given that i was uh, up until recently car shopping and my goodness like i i had a lovely red car i loved my red car i was surprised kind of once you start looking once you once you kind of start looking at just different colors and whatnot oh my gosh everything is gray white or black um, and that's certainly not to go extreme and say there are no color cars out there. There's no reds or orange or blues, but they're rarer. They're like probably closer to one in 10. And then everything else is kind of this, as the article says, average, um, 
Which, I mean, if humanity is just one giant optimization problem, well, then you're going to go for the average. Like, even if there are the edge cases that have the, I let's flatter ourselves and say the more refined palette. You sell to the refined palette, you're not going to make as much, and so you have there's no incentive to do that. And so it's it is kind of a, it is a natural conclusion, I suppose, which is kind of a disturbing one. Yeah, I love this this article. I sent it around to a bunch of people, um, fan members who are in the design field, and they all loved it. I mean, it is a very poignant article, and you can take you can read this and take issues with it. Um, I took issue with with their comments on skylines. Um, I've heard some issues with their with their comments on like Instagram looks and and like the variation there. That might not be like the strongest points, but even if you you set those aside, it's still an incredibly strong article. It makes me want to read more of this website. I haven't dug into it, but Alex Mural, who who wrote the article, seems like seems like a very very good thinker that we should read more of. I, I'm actually sort of of of, of two minds about that. Uh, not not just like because I don't I don't know anything about the author beyond this article, but this article is you know in, in a lot of ways something that it feels like anyone could have written if you just paid attention, if you just like connected the dots almost in like a DFW sort of way. If you're like, hey, wait a minute, I saw that this car does look like that car. It looks like that car. And they all are gray. And you just sort of like actually like say it instead of just saying like, oh, I guess this, this is how things are now. Um, which I guess maybe that's that's the courage that makes a, a, a good article writer from a, one that doesn't write at all. But with this article, obviously, like sort of like once you see it, you can't unsee it is one of the the sort of parts of it that makes it so attractive. The other part is that I think it raises a lot of questions that it doesn't answer. And there's a lot of rich discussion that I think there's that I that I haven't had or like haven't thought through. Um, like sort of like you uh, said, Stephen, like it might be an optimization problem. You could see it that way. But at the same time, it gets you thinking about what is what are our philosophical commitments to aesthetics, which I think is something that most of us don't think about. We're in the consumer mode. You don't have a commitment to saying that places should look different from other places because they are specific places and they should look like the ground and the materials of the location that they're at. And that there's something valuable, inherently valuable and rooting and grounding in that. And if you believe that, what costs are you willing to incur to fight back against the average, which will also be the cheapest? So that's that's one angle that I think there's a lot to do uh, with a lot of these subtopics. Uh, uh, another angle that you could take out of this article uh, is AI, which was is not mentioned at all, but is a whole relevant subfield. If you have LLMs, whatever, and you know image learning, all these things that are learning from a set that is already converging towards sameness, in some degrees at least, and then that's just repeating and cycling back and back on itself. Like, you know, does this kick into hyperdrive? Do we start hallucinating off in crazy psychedelic directions instead? Like, does it drive us? Does it drive the AI so insane that they? you know, uh, get weirder and maybe we break out of it, but not in a uh, rooted way or in like a real homed way, but rather in, you know, like a psychotic break kind of way. So I think this article can go, can take us in a lot of directions, uh, which I think is is sort of uh, what good articles do. I mean, AI is just another way of saying optimization problem. It's just a, you know, multidimensional optimization problem. It's you're optimizing over thousands and thousands of dimensions. So you're, if, if my analogy holds, which certainly it's up for grabs if that analogy holds, but if the analogy holds, then adding AI to it indeed will only just make things converge in very silly ways. Although, 
it depends if it's a if it's a convergent or a non or a, a divergent method. I mean, maybe it maybe it won't converge, and maybe it'll just blow up. Who knows? So, Stephen, are are you proposing based AI? Is that what I'm hearing? I mean, I think I think Muskie has already uh, has already proposed that as uh, as cringy as some of that uh, that nonsense is. Um, yeah, you know what I mean, you know, just I'm I'm proposing more no AI. I'm proposing going back to the good old days of the '90s, of the 1490s, when there was no printing press and there was no reading. Word. So, so Brevin, one last question: What is the problem with reading? After all this time, my answer is the same as it was from back in the early days, which is that it's hard and it takes too long. And it has never been more true. Well, for everyone here at The Problem With Reading, I'm Sam. I'm Steven. And I'm Brevin. And I'm sure by the end of this episode, you're all going to be so sick of hearing that. All right, and that was, as a matter of fact, our final article, our final top article of the year. Gentlemen, what a ride it's been. It's been a great time, man. We have, uh, we have some pretty good guest stars. I, uh, I'm, a, I'm a fan. And many more topics uh, brought up that we will for sure have to cover in the new year. There's always more conversation to be had. There's always more and unique problems with reading. Uh, depending on when this comes out, hopefully uh, just right around the new year uh this can be your your little intro to the new year you know a little wrap up a little close up your little spotify wrap from the uh, problem with reading squad so for everyone here at the 2023 problem with reading podcast i'm brevin i'm steven i'm sam merry christmas happy new year or more likely happy epiphany
Hello, everyone, and welcome to yet another episode of The Problem with Reading. I'm Brevin. I'm Steven. And I'm Sam. And this is a very special episode because this is not like our normal episode where we have, you know, a topic, maybe a couple articles. No, no, no. This is a buffet, a smorgasbord, uh, even a feast of articles. Because uh, we have asked many of our dear friends, friends of the pod, people who have been here before, people who know the lay of the land and, and what we like to hear. Uh, and we have asked them a question. And, and what question was that, Stephen? Uh, the question is, what is the problem with reading? No, the question is, what's the best article that you read this year? Okay, well, but that was literally the question. I know, question. I know. that question. Yeah, that was the big question that we asked. Okay, but no. The question was, what is your best article of the year? And then we also have a mystery question for them after. Yes, although it won't be mystery after the first one, because we do the same thing every okay, time. Well, it was a mystery to, to, to them. Oh, yes, that's true. Okay, let's, let's, just, let's just scratch all that, and let's, let's just uh, redo. <laughs> Okay. I swear I wasn't trying you to, to kill me here. <laughs> All right. So going back to and what question what was that? And do you say what was the best article you read this year? Uh, okay. You can just... you, okay. Yes. Question was that. Uh, the question was, what's the best article you've read this year? 